Hi, I'm Angela Lucier, a professional public speaker, seven-time author, two-time TEDx speaker, and CEO and founder of the Speaker Sisterhood, a network of public speaking clubs for women. And I'm Dr. Jolie Hamilton, a research psychologist, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and ASEC certified sex educator. Together, we're the hosts of Claim the Stage, a podcast about speaking and sisterhood. If you've been a fan, you know I've been doing this show solo, and it's been all about public speaking for years. Well, that all changes now. Well, you're still talking about speaking on stage, but now we're also going to focus on the three things that you need to make an impact, your voice, confidence, and sisterhood. The show is a training ground to go from dreaming to creating. Right. And we'll still be doing interviews with expert guests. Plus, you'll also get more personal stories and insights from us as well. I'm really excited to see where this goes. Me too. And slightly freaked out. Yeah, me too. Welcome to the next chapter of Clay on the Stage. Hello, welcome, Miss Ms. Ms. Jolie. What do you go by? Ms. No, Mrs. never Ms. Doctor. Doctor. Always doctor. Always doctor. Always doctor. You know Before why? Before you were a doctor, though, what did you go by? Ms. Definitely. I am. I am nobody's Mrs. <laughs> I, and seriously, Mrs. Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> no. And before that, Mrs. Cook. No, that was my mother-in-law. Uh, bless her, but no, not me. Yeah. <laughs> I can't pull off Mrs. It's yeah. Just not- not in me. I honestly, I think the doctorate was mostly so that I could just Avoid. clear the slate and have one that I liked. <laughs> yeah. What do you think when, when someone says ma'am or miss to address you? I actually, I don't mind ma'am or miss because those feel neutral. They feel like somebody's just looking at me. I read as very femme. So I, it doesn't bother me at all. Um, like I read as femme because I mean to, it feels very intentional for me. So it doesn't bother me. And I actually really like sir as well. Like I'm happy to be served. My daughters do it all the time and I love it. So, <laughs> I mean, I, th- I don't think they mean for me to love it necessarily. I think it's meant to be a little ironic, like, sir, <laughs> but yeah. I still like it. So yeah. What about I, you? I like when servers or people I don't know call me honey. I think it's really cute or hun. My, yeah. My mom was a big honey person. So I think I am too. I, I, it depends where I am. I'm like, oh, I don't know whether I'm supposed to do that in this place. So I try to be careful, try to get to know people, yeah. honey, pumpkin. Well, mostly, lots of things. like women who are older than me and they call me that, I think it's really nice. But if a guy called me that, that I didn't know, I, I don't think I'd like it. That's true. Yeah. So the, the motherliness yeah. and I've been, I've been able to pull off a strong mother vibe since my twenties. So yeah. yeah, I think that's, that's where it works for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, on today's show, we are interviewing Nikki Rausch, who is also known as your sales maven, which I love. That's such a great maven. Yeah. I like that, right? Somebody could call me maven. I'd be totally down with that. We need the t-shirts. Call me maven. Yeah. (laughs) And we're talking about how to be a selling boss and how to get over the fear of selling. And for anyone who's in business, who sells yourself as a speaker, who has a book and needs to promote your book, you know, all about the pains that come along with selling because you've had to put yourself out there and be visible and ask people, do you love me enough to buy my thing? And that's really hard to do. 
<laughs> so Nikki gives great advice. We I had her on the show last year too to talk about her her concept uh, called the selling staircase. So I'm going to put the link in the show notes to that episode if anyone wants to go back and listen. She is a wealth of knowledge on the topic of selling. And the one thing that I really loved, I mean I loved a lot of what she said, but what I really loved just as a starting point is she says, I'm a shy person and selling doesn't come naturally to me. And I love that she says that. So I, th I think the assumption is if you're good at selling, you're a natural extrovert, you're a natural um, outgoing person. And that's just not true. And I think like, you know, with my story being a shy person and becoming a public speaker, I just really appreciate and understand that that journey you have to take of learning about yourself, learning about your own style and finding a way that works for you that's authentic. And then using that to sell and, and connect and build relationships. Because at the end of the day, that's really what it's all about. And, and Nikki does a great job of showing that and walking her talk and making selling feel like something we can actually look forward to. Would you say that was, what was your experience, Jolie? Well, yeah, I think that she, one, made it, she reminded me that it's about the relationship. So anything that starts with relationship, I can usually talk myself down off the ledge and say, okay, you can do this because you love relationship. But I wanted to address what you just said. You said that, you know, your story as an introvert, becoming a public speaker, you know, as a, as a self-identified shy person. And she identified as shy and she, she thought of herself as, you know, not a natural born salesperson. I identify as an extroverts extrovert. I, and I test as like a super extroverted and yet sales does not come naturally to me. I think that that's part of the mystique of what sales is like somebody who really is a natural born salesperson. Like they just came out of the womb ready to sell. Um, that's not introversion or extroversion. That's something else. I, I don't, I think that's a separate quality because I'll talk to people about uncomfortable things all day long. I'll even talk about money, but asking someone like making the ask, making my value proposition, and then making the ask that is still challenging. So mm -hmm. I think that she had great ideas about how to approach that in ways that worked for, I think, both of us, even though we come at it from different angles. Yeah. This is one of the reasons I love hosting the show with you because we have such different uh, approaches to what we're doing, but we still struggle in different ways. And <laughs> hopefully the audience can hear themselves reflected in one of us because we've we've got our own stuff going on. For real. So I thought we could open the show today talking about some of our own struggles with selling and how we've overcome those struggles or what we've learned about ourselves through those struggles. Because I've been in business now for 12 years. You've been in several different businesses over several years. So you've had a lot of different stuff come up. <laughs> my eyes are rolling back in my head. Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. And so do you want to maybe start out with a story of a thing of a time when you were trying to sell something and what happened? <laughs> Maybe we can so, dissect it. I think that my favorite selling story for me is that I, I carry a message inside of me that says that selling is somehow bad. And I know exactly where that message came from. So Ooh. I can identify it. I can go back. I can put myself back in there. I had the most wonderful great aunt in the whole world. I, I loved her so much. And she was my matriarchal figure. She was grand and wonderful. And she had her own stuff like everybody does. She was an entrepreneur. And I never remember her talking about that. She just ran her own salon like from, from her like 
uh, from her late twenties, maybe she, she did all the things she raised, uh, she, she handled family and business and all the things. And she was amazing. But I started selling things when I was a kid. So I started selling tie-dyed t-shirts and then I was making clocks. I was like, like making them out of um, birch plywood. And I was making all these things. I always wanted to sell whatever I was making. And so for those first couple of years between say eight and 11, I was making things and, and I, it, it was always another idea. Like, oh, I'll just sell this thing. And I remember sitting in her salon one day my Mamie, my lovely Mamie, twirling the chair like I always did. And I was talking about wanting to sell my clocks. And she she got this look on her face that I can only describe as sort of disappointment. But now as an adult, I can also read how maybe a projected disappointment, like a, a fearful that I would be disappointed about something. And she just said, I don't, I, do you need to sell everything? It doesn't always need to be that. Just make something. It was a total stop. Like I actually, I stopped the chair. I stopped moving. The whole world froze. And from that point forward, whenever I consider selling something, I get that frozen feeling. It comes right back. I get stuck. And yet my entrepreneurial spirit like never went away. I've run 12 businesses now. <laughs> I've always been selling something. But that frozen little 11-year-old girl, she is loud um, in her frozenness. And so my, now it comes up and it, it interrupts my ability to even get to the point where I'm selling. If I can leap over the frozen girl, like if I can get her unfrozen, then I can sell. But my problem actually comes up before that, where I will just give myself away for years. <laughs> I'm confused about that comment she made that you have to sell everything. How did that comment come across to you? How did you read that? Yeah, I read it as my stuff wasn't good enough or it like it. I should, I should maybe be ashamed or I like, or maybe she was ashamed of me. Cause it's definitely a shame feeling like okay. tangled up in there. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not a clear feeling cause shame hides, but she didn't really comment on the thing I was selling. She didn't have a critique of the thing I was, I was looking at. In fact, the clocks that I was making at the time, she actually put up for sale in her shop and <laughs> I sold several of them. So it wasn't like she really didn't like my stuff. Um, yeah, she was raised in a very different era. And I think it just, the, the, the message did not come across clearly because I still, I never asked her what she meant. She died when I was 25 and you know, I was the executor of her estate. I was very, you know, in, intricately woven into her life and I never asked her. I never had the courage to say, why didn't you want me to, to be an entrepreneur? I didn't even have that word then. Yeah. I'd, I'd run like four businesses by then. And I, <laughs> I still didn't use that word. If she said that to you today, how do you think you would have interpreted that comment? I think today I would hear it as, no, I don't have, I, you don't have to sell it. I think I would hear it from a place of love. I think she may have been trying to tell me you're a kid. You get to just enjoy your life. Chill yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> My parents did not, um, they did not provide for me the way she would have liked for me to be provided for. Mm -hmm. And so she filled in a lot of the gaps, um, as did my, my aunt, one of my other aunts, um, they filled in the gaps, but I think she just wanted me to relax and enjoy myself. And I wanted a way out of the house I had grown up in. Mm -hmm. And I saw what she did. She grew up and just like created herself 
in a time when women didn't work. She was a single woman who ran a very successful business all on her own. Who does that? Like, like there are people, she was, she was very accomplished. She was in multiple leadership positions and nobody ever even talked about that. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a thing. I think she wanted me to enjoy my time because she knew that the rest of my life, I was going to be a lot like her, that I was going to be a responsible, caretaking, ambitious woman. And she wanted me to rest. Mm -hmm. So when you're selling in your business now, you still have that moment come up for you of her saying, why do you have to sell everything? I do because the frozen moment is in my body. Yeah. So even though I know she meant well, that moment lives in my head. My body remembers the frozen moment of, oh my gosh, my stuff isn't good enough or she's embarrassed about me or something. Yeah. And so I have to, I have to get past it. I have to actually like thaw myself out a little bit and move forward. And it's still hard. It's Mm -hmm. still really hard. I mean, you've been on pre-sales conversations with me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say, you just took a humongous leap in your business and doubled your rates. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a big year for me. What shows up in your body when you're saying the rate out loud now? You know, if you'd asked me that in January, I would have said that a lot of fear and a lot of self-worth issues would come up. But in the ensuing two months, my business has like uh, five times over. I, I've I've gotten so much busier mm-hmm. that right now, when I say it, I'm like, oh, of course, that's my price. It It needs to be. For one thing, I show up 100% every time, um, probably more than a hundred percent every time. And for another, it actually helps people feel like they're investing in themselves. And so Nikki talks about that in the, in the interview. And it was a real confirmation for me that I was on the right path because I noticed my clients start to take their work more seriously. And one of my clients was delightful and actually said that she said, Oh, I've been working with you for years and now I'm going to take it seriously. Amazing. Like that was self-awareness. We've been working together for five years. Wow. And she noticed and she was like, oh yeah. And so every session since has been this, oh, okay, I'm coming in and I'm here. And this is my responsibility to, to show up and do the work. So do you think that by doubling your rate, you were saying to her, I'm taking my work more seriously. And now it's time for you to, as well, by committing to this higher investment. I think that that's, that is part of it. And part of it was that I also owned all of my authority. Yeah. I enrolled in a program recently and they made me list out all the ways that I've trained myself, all the things I've done to make myself an expert in what I do. It's an enormous list. Yeah. I don't usually think of myself as terribly accomplished. When other people read my, my accomplishments, I'm like, And if you ask me to introduce myself, I do it as fast as possible and I just move through it and I don't think about it. But when I made this list, I thought, oh, right. My rates reflect not just the money I've spent on my training, but the decade on this very specific kind of training. This has been the most intense experience of my life. And I birthed a 10 pound baby at home on my bathroom floor. So Uh, when I say intense, I mean it. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) This has been super, super intense. Um, and that, so all, I feel like the rate now has to do with both of us, me and my client showing up into the work at the, at the level it really needs to be taken seriously at like, and if you're not ready to, then you're not ready to. 
I love that. And let's just tell everybody, what is your close rate with all of the people you've talked to since January and in, in, uh, doubling your rate? Oh, wow. You're so, you look, it's a hundred percent. It's, it's, let's just take a moment of pause to just really take that in. <laughs> yeah. It, it's been weird for me. I'm like, oh, it didn't used to be a hundred percent. Um, so when I raised my rate and I took myself seriously, what I saw was that the world did. Oh, yeah. That's shit. huge, dude. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. <laughs> it's also really helped me to structure the work differently, yeah. which is amazing. And to claim my book. Um, so I wrote this book, Project Relationship Thinking, it would be a catalyst for things, but now I see it as, oh, if people don't want to invest in working with me one-to-one, there is another way. They can do this DIY. Like I wrote down a lot of the steps I'm going to take people through. So the book's available. It's $20. It's not, you know, it's, it's not a huge investment. So there is an in-between if people are in that spot. And I've, I've been trying to be the in-between, but then um, who did we hear? So like, who was talking about that, about like, on your on the podcast before I was on about somebody funding somebody was talking sales and talking about like somebody our clients ask them to I don't know like to 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 back them up in a way that we don't have backup to I can't remember who it was now I don't remember but, yeah but like our sometimes we'll have clients who hope that we will be the subsidy for their life yeah and I love working pro bono when someone, when someone needs it, but I, but I can't be the subsidy for everyone and still have my life. Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. Well, I have had uh, my own struggles with asking for not only asking for what I'm worth, but just having the money conversation in general. Yeah. And as I was preparing for this conversation, I was thinking back to my whole career in sales and really my first sales job was working at a recruiting agency. And this was before I owned a business. And my job was, was half filling jobs and finding the right candidates to fill the positions. But the other half was actually prospecting and going out and finding companies that needed jobs filled. And so I would spend half my day cold calling businesses around the area and asking them if they needed any engineer. I was working in technical recruiting, so engineers and production people. And one company said, yeah, why don't you come to the office and we can talk about the jobs we need help with. And my boss, the owner of the agency, and I went down there and there's a whole process for filling in the job requirements. And you kind of do a whole intake with the client to understand what they're looking for. And the last part of the meeting is to ask about the fee. And we would do two different types of of relationships, a commission fee and a retainer fee or a retainer fee. And it was always between 15 and 25%. You always wanted to go for the 25% retainer because you get paid up front and it's the highest number. So you always want to start with that. And so they trained me on how to do all of this. And as I'm going through the meeting and asking about the different qualifications they're looking for and years of experience, I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, we're getting to the part of the meeting where I have to ask for money. Oh my God, we're going to get there soon. Oh, we have one page left. Oh my God, I have half a page left. Oh my God, we're three minutes away. (laughs) And I'm not even like paying attention to what they're saying. I'm just writing things down and we get to the end of the meeting and I see the fee part of the paperwork 
And I just look up at them and I go, all right, well, we'll call you. And my boss looks at me <laughs> and I look at him and I'm thinking to myself, please save me, please bring up the fee so I don't have to. And he can see it in my eyes and I can see in his eyes that he's not going to do it. And I look back at the clients and I just said, thanks for your time. And we left and we got out into the parking lot and my boss said to me, what happened in there? I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> oh. <laughs> and he said, why don't you bring up the fee? That's the end of the meeting. You have no idea if, how much they're going to pay you for this. You just walked out the door without really closing the sale. I said, I couldn't do it. And he said, I couldn't save you. This is part of your job. You have to learn how to do it. And while there was a part of me that really hated him for doing that to me, there was a part of me that needed to grow up and really take responsibility and ask and learn how to ask for money and have the difficult conversations. And so I ended up calling them when I got back to my office and saying there was one part of the meeting we didn't have and apologize for taking more of their time and getting that settled. And in the end, I was able to fill that job and brought in $25,000 to the agency for that position. And I was really proud of myself for doing it. But when I, when I look back on that meeting, I see a person, you know, my past self who was incredibly insecure and afraid of asking for what I needed and afraid of showing any vulnerability around like needing something. I, I just wanted to be there for everybody. And those part of like my codependence and just wanting to show up and prove myself and, and, and not let them see that there was something I needed in return for it. And it took me a lot of growth to start to figure out that business is actually cyclical. It's give and take. And it's not just about being there for everyone else. It's about getting in return. And that was a really hard lesson for me to learn. It took me a lot of years to really feel like it was safe and it was okay to say, what about me? And if I'm going to do this for you, here's what I need in return. I always wanted to give everything away. <laughs> and like now I, when I say no to somebody, I feel proud of myself for doing that. Like when someone says, Hey, can you come do this free, this presentation? Sorry, we can't pay you. A lot of times I say no to those requests and I don't feel guilt or shame about it, but I wonder what's going through their mind that they think it's okay to say, we're going to ask you for an hour of your time, even the, and, and the fact that you spent like 15 years working on this skill set and we're not going to offer you anything for that. Like that's, that's what, I, that's the conversation I have now instead of, oh, I should have given myself away. It's more like, well, why do they think it's okay to do that? <laughs> like, I would never ask somebody to do that. I think it's crazy <laughs> unless it's like a, um, a charitable event, but yeah, I mean, I still do. I I'm speaking next month for a charitable event and yeah, that's a completely different thing. I want, for one thing, I'm invested in their cause myself. It's easy to, that's giving, that's not giving away. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. That's it's good, different. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I think I've had to do a lot of self-worth work to mm -hmm. start to really figure that out and do a lot of like inner child work and start to understand where those messages come from. And I wanted to share that story because I know that selling and asking for money can be such, um, it can create a lot of resistance. And I think that selling isn't really about the process of selling. It's about showing up and saying, am I worthy of what I'm asking for? And that's the real conversation that we have to address with ourselves, the worthiness. And um, there's a lot of work that goes into coming up with the answer to that question. That's not necessarily associated with your business or the thing that you're selling. 
No, the work that I had to do or has largely revolved around self-worth and around money stories that, I mean, I would have regardless of whether I was selling just my, if I were, we don't generally think of asking for our salary as a sales pitch. I mean, in some ways it is, but we don't think of it that way, but the same stuff came up for me when I did work for someone else trying to ask for that worth is it's tied into all your, all your inner child stuff and tied into the messages we get every day that tell us to ask for less. Mm-hmm. But do you know what else is you and I both sell something intangible. Yeah. That I think it is definitely part of my story. So when I was a kid, I was raised by a, um, blue collar family. And my parents were makers. Like they made stuff all the time. I learned to make everything. And I loved that. And I still love it. And when I was in businesses where I was selling a thing, that was the easiest selling I ever did. It was still hard. It still woke up my demons and it still caused problems, but I I knew what my deliverable was and it was very, very clear. And I knew I, I could craft messages around it although I didn't think of it as crafting messages then. Um, you know, if I was, I designed wedding dresses for years. At the end of the day, they were going to walk away with a wedding dress. That like that was very clear. But when I started selling um, my services as a doula, that was a completely different thing. And now as, a, as somebody who's coaching, like that's, or speaking, you're standing on a stage, people don't leave with something in their hand. And somehow that wakes up my, all my insecurities about the thing. Cause I want it to be tangible, but all that leads me to do is like make worksheets and I like try to make the intangible thing tangible. Yeah. I'm not sure that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying to cut back on that. Cause I don't think it's helpful. I think it just bogs people down mm-hmm. and I'm noticing it. Cause it bogs me down when mm-hmm. I buy into someone's program or I am working with them one-on-one. I want, I want their them. I want, I want their, their essence. And I want to interact with them far more than I want their worksheets. Right. Yeah. It's a balance figuring out what's really helpful versus what you're making just to prove the worth. Right. Yeah. 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 To, to make that value stack. Yeah. It's, yeah. Well, um, I hope these, these stories of our <laughs> selling journeys have been a total helpful. discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yet we persevere. We, we do keep going and we succeed. Yeah, we do. And today I'm really happy to say that I don't have any problem asking for money anymore. It's really, it's nice. And I recently asked for a large amount of money for a program I worked really hard on and I didn't think twice about it. And I didn't sit there and hit send with like sweat coming down my forehead going, what if they think this is crazy? I said, if they don't want to buy this, that's okay. It's not a good match, but I know it's worth this amount. That's the trick. Yeah. And they came back the next day and they're like, let's get started. And I was like, great. And I don't have to think, I don't have to give it a second thought and wonder, did I ask for too much money? Because I know that this program is worth a lot of money. Right. (laughs) That's it. So we know our value and Nikki was talking about knowing our value and then communicating it so well. I really appreciate that. So I think this is a great interview. Yeah. I think everyone's going to take something from this. Even if you're not a salesperson, it's just all persuading. Yes. (laughs) And what she says about the neuro-linguistic programming and how to show up to any meeting, it's so brilliant. And 
I like that it's applicable to so many situations. And I wrote all of it down as she was telling us. And I thought, I'm going to use this a lot. <laughs> I have it on a sticky note right in front of me. <laughs> yeah. <Right> now. <laughs> So before we jump into the interview, let me tell you a little bit more about Nikki Rausch. After 25 years of experience selling to such pre prestigious organizations as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Hewlett Packard, and NASA, Nikki decided to trade in her road warrior status so she could help entrepreneurs sell in a way that builds relationships, creates true connection, and results in more closed deals and long-term clients. Now as a sales coach, author, speaker, and founder of Sales Maven, Nikki transforms the misunderstood process of selling into techniques, tools, and tips for busy entrepreneurs. And she actually gives away a free download, which we have in the show notes that you can access and get more information about her process and her techniques and her tools. So anything else you want to add before we jump into the interview? No, I think this is a good one to have a notebook out for. Just Yes. That. Good call. So with that, enjoy Nikki Roush. All right, Nikki Roush, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me back. I'm so honored. Yeah. Last time we had you on the show to talk about the misunderstood process of selling. And today we're going to talk about how to sell like a boss and overcome the fear of selling. I know so many business owners who love what they do, but they really dislike the process of selling what they do. And it can yeah. be confusing because there's that fear of sounding slimy or coming across like you're uh, trying to peddle something that someone doesn't need. But <laughs> yes. I know that you come at it from a very different perspective and you're all about trying to show the value and getting people to understand why it's important. And so I thought we could start with just a little bit about like your basic philosophy around selling. Mm -hmm. And maybe that can just start as a conversation as, as the starter of where we're going to go with this conversation. Okay. That sounds great. So my basic philosophy about sales is sales isn't something that you do to somebody. It's something you do with somebody. And when you start treating it, like this is a conversation, this is, you know, I'm here to be of service and, to understand what the need is, what the problem is, what the want is, and determine whether or not I have something that's going to meet that need, that want, that desire, whatever it is. And if not, bless and release, move on, like so nice to meet the person. And if so, doing it in a way that makes it really easy for the person to make a decision, yes or no, to work with you. And that's really kind of what it comes down to. And really, I focus on the conversation of sales. There's a lot of um, things that are happening with selling. And I just think that the conversation is the piece that oftentimes moves somebody from one step to the next. And I don't know, we t I think we talked about this last year that I teach a five-step process to selling the sales conversation called the selling staircase. And it really is your job to move a client from one step to the next and to make it easy for them and not do it in a way that's pushy and aggressive take the lead and make it easy for them to go like, oh, I know what to do next, or I know what to ask next, or I'm ready to sign up, whatever that is. I love that idea of not selling. It's not something you do to somebody. It's something you're doing with them. It's just, it's so relaxing. Like it just takes the whole conversation, the whole thought of doing selling sales in such a different direction. Did it take you a long time to come up with that or to figure out that that shift is really the starting point for kind of reframing selling? 
Well, it's probably taken me a long time to come up with like that phrasing of it. Um, I will say that when I started my first corporate sales position, I was working in a very male-dominated industry and the best salespeople on the sales floor were these really aggressive men. And I am actually quite shy by nature and I love relationship and I love communication, but the idea of like being aggressive and like putting somebody on the spot, like how, like, why would you say no to that? Like, why, why would you, why would you say no? Like, of course you want this deal. Like that is so not my style. And so having to figure out a way that I could be successful and do it in a way that was really authentically me. And I think that's where I got this idea of like, this is about relationships. And if I can build strong relationships, if I can build rapport with people, then I'm going to have success, which I did. I had a lot of success in my corporate sales career. And I just found that over and over again, it came down to people felt comfortable with me. It never felt pushy or aggressive. And yet I always got the ask out. I always got to the place where, are you ready to move forward? Should we schedule a time to do that? Should we place place your order? Like getting to that place was always really important, but doing it in a way that felt felt good for me and more importantly for the other person. Yeah. So I I'm super jazzed because I am all about relationships. Um, so I'm very, very excited. What I'm hearing is like, like you're you're being empathy led. You're like leaning into like I'm a person, you're a person. So yeah. super excited about that because anything else is sort of inherently damaging to our humanity. So it just feels really icky. Like it made my nose go all scrunchy when I heard, <laughs> when I heard you like embody the, the aggressive sales dude. Um, uh, and even though we can find it to be a turnoff, that doesn't actually stop them from doing it because it works because bullying works. So yeah. to, it sounds like you've actually found an antidote because there's this other path that we can take. And I'm super interested to hear. So what do you do about the fact that that empathetic move, that conversational move seems like it takes longer. And, and I struggle with this myself. I, I think I, I think I sell in the, the mode that you're talking about, mm-hmm. but I think I tend to take longer to do it. And I'm not always sure whether that's okay. I feel a certain time pressure. Like I'm supposed to be able to squish it into that same aggressive framework. What do you, what do you think about that? I, I'm just curious. Well, I think first, I think as long as you understand where are we in the conversation and what's the next step in the conversation, then it may take multiple conversations, frankly, because we only got to this step and the person is just ready to go there. Um, They're not quite ready to go to that next step. So that may take multiple conversations. However, I find a lot of times with my clients they're the ones who are putting on the brakes, not the client. And so you've got to take your cues from your client. You have to always initiate whatever the next step is. And if they're ready to go, then you need to be ready to move. And the idea that oftentimes, I I get this a lot with clients where we'll break down their sales process, we'll break down their sales conversations, and, the, and people will tell me all the time, like, no, it, Nikki, it takes me three conversations to close the sale. And I'll, I always get curious about, like, why three? Like, is that true? And um, oftentimes, it's because they're putting up roadblocks. Like, the, the person who's in the position of selling because, I'm uncomfortable with the, the money conversation or, oh, I don't want somebody to feel like I'm being pushy. But actually, your job is to make it really easy for the person to buy. And if they're ready right then, 
you got to take the order. So many times people tell me like, oh, well, I just tell them like, okay, well, I'm going to send out a contract and, you know, and I'll send the invoice. And like, if you pay it, like when you're ready, like, no, if they're ready right then say to them, I can go ahead and take your credit card right now. And oftentimes people will be like, great. So now I don't have to like look in my email and I don't have to go sign something and I don't have to like jump through all these hoops because I now I'm in and I feel like you're in and now we get to move in the direction that I need to go as the prospect. So make sure you're making it really easy for people. And frankly, if they're ready to, if they're ready to buy, you got to be ready to sell. Uh, yeah. I'm hearing you actually offering. That's, t- it's so spot on. You're offering them relief instantly rather than the relief that'll come. You know that you'll offer them relief when they engage with your actual process, but, or your product or whatever it is, but you're offering them relief in the moments that they, that they engage in the sale by making it easy. That's a much more yummy framework for me (laughs) mentally. That that's much more comfortable. And I've been practicing making the ask in the call, in the short call, but, um, and I didn't realize that it feels great, but I still have resistance. And I think it's that, it's that naysayer in my head that says, if you sell, you're bad. Like it, it is a, that is a pervasive old mm-hmm. message. Like just all sales equals um, anti-relational. It's yeah. incredibly and, challenging. And the fact of the matter is if you go back um, and I've listened to a little bit of you and a little bit about your background too, that, I mean, you have this extensive background and knowledge and you've spent a lot of time and energy and frankly, money investing in yourself, learning the skill sets that you have and what you teach um, and what you offer to the world, right? So the idea is you had to, you had to invest in yourself in order for you to feel credible in order for you to feel legitimate about who you are and how you show up in the world. You didn't just show up one day and be like, Hey, I'm going to tell everybody about this or that, right? Like, no, you invested a bunch of time and energy and money. You're, you want your clients to have that same experience. That means they have to be able to invest in themselves. You know, you're going to deliver an amazing experience for them. Like really, if you're out of integrity, like, please don't follow the work that I do. Like, I don't want anybody doing anything that's out of integrity. But if you are in integrity, you're making it really easy for that person to get what it is that they need. And frankly, when you put money on the line, you feel really good about like, hey, I've taken a step in the right direction to invest in myself or invest in my business or invest in my relationship and I'm going to get results. And we value what we pay for. People who just give it all away for free, oftentimes, like I'll I'll tell you, if I just gave all of my knowledge away for free, people wouldn't get the kind of results that they get. But because they invest in themselves, they implement what I teach. And because they implement what I teach, they get amazing results. And then they go back and feel really good about themselves. Like I made a good investment here. I made a good decision. That is so what I needed to hear right now. Like, I'm just going to take that. I'm going to take that answer. I'm going to put it on loop. I'm going to wake up every morning and I'm going to listen to it because you're totally right. And I knew when I invested in those things, the different training programs, the degrees, all of that, I knew I was doing exactly what you're describing. And every time I did, yeah, I invested big. And then I, I stacked into that all of everything I had in me because I had invested really big in myself. Um, I haven't, I haven't been embodying that in my sales calls. I can, I can feel it. Like there's, there's definitely been resistance to that. So, okay. I've got my soundbite. I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Nikki, do you, do you think there are steps to take to overcoming your fear uh, around sales or is it kind of just what we've been talking about? Well, one thing I will say is I think it's really important that you manage your internal state of mind because it, just like I think Julie said, like it's really easy to get in your head or have some voice going like, oh, you're bad. You're, you know, if you're selling, you're bad. That internal dialogue that you've got going on can often get in your way and hold you back in all areas of your life. And in the sales conversation, you do want to manage your internal state. So um, I don't know if you want me to teach this, but I'm happy to. Like I have a technique that comes from my background in neurolinguistic programming that is about managing your internal state. And I teach it all the time to my clients. There's something you should do before you go into a meeting, before you get on that Zoom call, before you even frankly write an email to get yourself in the right frame of mind. Because if you're in the frame of mind of, of listening to this internal critic that you've got going on about like, oh, sales is bad, you're bad. you know, How dare you take money from something that feels easy to you and all that kind of stuff. Then we get in our head and frankly, we come across either less sure of ourselves, and nobody wants to buy from somebody that's like, well, maybe I could help you. No, I want to buy from the person's like, look, Nikki, when you invest, you, when you invest in this, it is going to absolutely make a difference in your life. Then I'm like, Ooh, I'm in. Right. But the person is like, well, you could buy from me. Like, no, I don't want to buy from that person. That doesn't feel good. So you got to manage your internal state. And that mindset and all that stuff. So really it comes down to what are you doing? Do you have some type of a practice? And it doesn't have to be like, I'm not talking about 30 minutes of meditation even, but something that allows you to go like, okay, I'm on. I'm going to be the best version of myself right now. I'm going to give my all to this person. I'm going to give them my attention. I'm going to give them whatever it is that they need. And I'm going to make it easy for them to take the next step with me. So you've got to manage your internal state. Yeah, I think we need to hear the NLP techniques. Okay. <laughs> okay, good. So this actually comes from a story that was told years ago. Um, and it's a true story. When JFK was elected president, that there was a time where apparently he pulled his press secretary aside and said that he was quite nervous in going in front of the press because you don't know what you're going to get asked. You're on this you know, worldwide stage. Everybody's looking at you. What if you get asked a question you don't know the answer to? Like That can feel intimidating, right? Even to, at the time, which was the most powerful position like in the world, which was the United States president. So the press secretary gave him these four statements to say to himself, which has now become what's known as the NLP mandala. So there are four statements and you don't just say the statements to yourself. You actually allow for yourself to feel it in your body. And now what's so brilliant about our brains is we don't actually have to have something physically in front of us to feel it. Like I always say to somebody, imagine right now that I, I cut a big juicy lemon and I gave each of you a slice of it. And I said, now stick it in your mouth and just suck all that juice. Like, like suck that juice out. Like, do you already start to feel it in your jaw a little bit? Oh, like, yeah. oh my gosh. <laughs> so that's how powerful our brain is. So we know how to feel things even when we're not in the situation. Like none of us have a slice of lemon in front of us. So when I give you the statements, the idea is what is what does that statement feel like in your body and allow yourself to feel it. So the first one is, I'm glad I'm here. Like, what do you feel like when you are so glad to show up someplace? Like, oh my gosh, I'm glad I'm here. That brings a different kind of energy to the conversation, right? So that's statement one. Statement two is, I'm glad you're here. 
Like I think about who am I going to be in conversation with? And thank goodness this person has shown up because I have something that might be of service to them. I might learn something from them. Like, thank goodness you two showed up today because this would be a really weird, awkward, (laughs) you know, recording if it was just me on your podcast, right? So I'm so (laughs) glad you're here. What is it like when you are so glad to be with the person that you're with? Because sometimes you might not always feel that way, frankly, but we want to show up as our best version of ourselves in that conversation. So I'm glad you're here. The third statement is the power statement. And that is the statement where you say, I know what I know. Because we all have expertise. None of us show up as like a brand new newbie. Like we're not in business if we're just kind of showing up randomly one day somewhere. Like I don't, you know, show up at NASA and be like, I think I'll be an astronaut. (laughs) Like, no, like (laughs) I show up and teach people about sales because I know about sales and I know a lot about sales. You both know a lot about what you do. And as the listener, you have a ton of expertise. So show up from that place of like, I know what I know. And when you have that, like even that stance about yourself, so some people call it like the superwoman, you know, or Wonder Woman stance or whatever it is, but whatever it is for you, when you show up of like, I know what I know, when you do get asked a question that maybe you're unsure how to answer, it's more like water off a duck's back because it's like, well, I don't have to know everything. I just need to know what I know. And I don't have to pretend that I have all the answers and I don't have to pretend that I'm something that I'm not because I am what I am. I know what I know. So that's the third one. And then the fourth statement is, I care about you. Mm. Like, don't most of us want to buy from people who care about us? Like, I actually refuse to give my money to somebody who treats me like I'm a walking wallet. That doesn't feel good to me. I want the person to be at care at some level. I don't go back to restaurants that treat me like they don't care if I'm there or not. You know, I return to places where I feel like, oh, they're happy I came. So when you treat other people like I care about you, then it comes across. So I actually learned this so many years ago in an NLP training. And I went into this like really high stakes meeting and I sat out in my rental car, by the way, for like 10 minutes saying these statements over and over to myself until I could like feel it in my body. And I went in and I gave this presentation and afterwards there was a guy who came up to me and he was like, geez, you seem really glad to be here. Like he actually used the words that I was saying to myself in my car. And I was like, oh, this works. And so I have just incorporated this. I do it before I get onto a podcast with you. Like I say these things. I do it before I have lunch with my mom. I do it before every client interaction, before every training I teach. I just do something to manage my state. And so for me, it's the NLP mandala. It's these four statements. I really only have to say them one time to myself now. I don't have to spend 10 minutes doing it. And it it's just enough of a trigger to be like, okay, give your all to this person. Like be your best version of yourself. And frankly, it isn't that you have to be like on a scale of one to 10, like a 10 the whole time. But for me, some days, like my very best is a six, just being really honest. And so I'm going to be the best six that I can be that day in that (laughs) meeting with that person and just give what I can give and be and, and manage my state. So that's the four statements. And I will please give yourself permission that if there's one of the statements that you're like, "Eh, that doesn't resonate with me, then change it, make your own version. But do something to manage your internal state because it will come across in the way that the person engages with you and the way you engage with them. Do you have examples of other stand-ins if someone doesn't like one of those statements? Yeah. Yeah. 
I had a client say to me one time about number four, she was like, Nikki, I don't care about everybody I meet. (laughs) What would you prefer? prefer? And she's like, I like to say I learn something new in every situation. I was like, perfect. Perfect. If that one works for you, then say that, you know, and if you are thinking like, I'm not glad to be here, then maybe the statement instead is like, I'm here and I'll make the best of it. Like maybe it's just that, but do something like come up with your own version. Again, I've been teaching this for so many years and I have clients that say it back to me all the time. And, you know, they're like, oh, I taught this to my husband or I taught this to my kids or whatever to just learn how to manage your state. I totally love that. And I have a statement that I didn't know that that's what I was doing, but there's something I say before I'm like, especially interacting with somebody who is like a cold call or like, I don't know what I'm going to get. I say, I choose, I'm choosing to do this. Remind myself Mm. like that I'm at choice and I chose to show up, which leaves me so much freer. Um, And I just, I, I don't know, that has really helped me meet people wherever they are and show up like in my, in my full humanness. So I didn't know that I was doing that, but I think I was. So I love that by the way, like, please use that one. If you need a substitute, like I'm choosing this because there's so much power in that, right? Like this is your choice. Yeah. It and as entrepreneurs, yeah, yeah, we get to choose, you know, we get to choose who we take on as clients <laughs> and who we bless and release. What if uh, someone starts doing these four statements and the voice in their head is just saying, no, you're not, you're not glad you're here. Nope. You're Mm -hmm. not. And like, that's just the response that keeps showing up. Would you say just keep trying or change it or? Well, sometimes you have to have a conversation with your critic, like frankly, (laughs) and a lot of times a critic's job is to keep you safe. Like that's the critic's job. Um, I will say there's this, this this is going to like really dive into some of my NLP stuff. Sometimes it's important to ask whose voice is it? Like we have voices in our head and oftentimes the one that is the most difficult for us is not our voice. Sometimes it's you're, you know, somebody said something to you one time and it's that person's voice. It could be a family member, it could be a teacher, it could be, you know, somebody that's still in your life that you respect and love. But sometimes we need to give back. <laughs> it's like we borrowed somebody's voice, like we borrowed a book and we put it on our bookshelf thinking like, I'm going to give it back because I'm going to read it and then I'm going to give it back. Um, when you have somebody else's voice in your head, you probably need to do something to give that back. Write them a letter. You don't have to send it, by the way. But do it from a place of care. Like, I'm so sorry. I borrowed this statement that you have that you that keeps coming up. And it's I, I realize that this is your opinion. And I'm so sorry I borrowed it and and like used it like it was my own. So I've, I'd like to give it back to you. So give it back and then like rip the letter up or burn it or, you know, do something to like release that. But if it, it is your voice, okay, this is your critic. Sometimes we need to put it into a how question because our brains love a how question. Mm. And so you might need to ask your critic, how could I show you that I am glad to be here? Like, yeah. How could I show this? I love that. It's so active. And then your brain is going to give you an answer. And frankly, now you're not in critic mode. Now we're in like realist mode. This is, this is really like down and dirty version of what's known as the Disney strategy for NLP. Um, The realist in you knows how to like do things. And if you can put things in a how question, 
actually, we want your critic really to be the one who's giving you the how question. Like, how can you, like, how can you show up and be glad? Or how can you show up and do this? Get your realist involved because your realist is the person who like makes lists, who like checks things off the box, right? Like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this, right? Like, let that answer come to you. And then like, ask your critic, are you willing to give me a chance here to show you that I can do this? And oftentimes your critic will be like, okay, but I'm going to stand right here. <laughs> you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to keep my eye on you. Okay, great. So sometimes you. we make friends with our critic. Yeah. And, and not in the like, please be nice to me, but like, what's it going to take? How can I do this? And, you know, are you willing to allow for me to go into this situation and be the best version of myself and frankly, close the deal? Mm-hmm. I love these, these four statements. They remind me of getting prepared to give a speech too being in the right, in the right energy, in the right mindset, and just, you know, being able to show up with uh, the right intention, you know, Mm -hmm. are there any other techniques you help for overcoming the fear of, of selling? Well, this isn't necessarily a technique, but it's more around this idea of rejection. And when, when people are selling, one of the biggest fears is like, (gasps) what if they reject me? Right, because what if they say no? And I, 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 well, here's a here's a story <laughs> from many many years back. I had a friend of mine reach out, and she was going for a sales position. She was going to interview, and she was like, "Okay, Nikki, I want to like ask you some questions because I haven't really been in sales before. Like, what are the kind of things I should ask? What are the kind of things I should say?" And and I was actually driving at the time, and so I'm I'm kind of coaching her on this idea about like here's the questions I would ask in an interview, and here's the things I would need to be prepared to answer as a sales professional. And she's like, "Well, you know, you know what's so great about you, Nikki? Which like right now I think, ooh, a compliment's coming. I love a compliment. So I was like, ooh, please tell me what's so great about me. Like I couldn't wait to hear her answer. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, "You're so good at rejection." And I'm not joking. I like slammed on the brakes and I like pulled my car to the side and I was like, what? What are you talking about? Like, who's rejecting me? What, what, what makes you think I'm good at rejection? And she's like, you know, when people tell you no, like you're so good at like, you don't ever get offended by it. And I was like, oh, hold up now. You think a no is rejection? No, that's not the case. And so here's, here's how I compare it to, if you go out and have a really beautiful meal, I know some of us can't wait for that to happen again, right? Like, but if you go out and you have a really beautiful meal at a restaurant and you have a great experience and the waiter comes by and says, you know, can I show you the dessert platter? And you go, oh, I couldn't possibly, I'm so full, but thank you so much. Maybe next time the waiter does not go back into the kitchen and like gather the staff and be like, can you believe that broad? Like she totally rejected me. I tried to give her dessert and she was like, no, I feel so rejected. Like I need to go home and like pull the covers over. Like the waiter doesn't care because it's an offer. And so what I will, what I do teach is that when you are selling, you are making an invitation. It's an offer. So I know the listeners can't see me right now, but I'm doing this thing where I like hold my hand up in the air, palm facing up. I'm not shoving it down your throat. I'm holding it right here. And if you say no, all I do is put my hand down. That's all it is. It's just, I made an invitation. You declined. Okay we can move on. It's not the end of the world. You're obviously not in the right 
like you're not the right client for me. I'm not the right person for you. It's okay. It's not rejection. No, oftentimes, frankly, when you get that far down the path with somebody in a sales call, oftentimes a no is just a not yet. That's what I find all the time. Often, if I'm really in my best mindset, I've shown up fully, I, I will hear somebody tell me halfway through a sales call something that I, I know means they're not ready. Yeah. And, and so closing the sale then really is about finishing the call in a way that leaves them feeling good you know, enough, but like I know they're not ready then. So for me, I, I, at that point, I'm worried only about preserving us like a, that relationship, like preserving mm-hmm. my sense of being in good relation to them. Um, cause I can, I don't know, maybe I'm over analyzing it, but I feel like I can feel their pain if they're like not yet. And they're wor- talking about my work. Often they're talking about, I'm not ready to love myself yet. I'm not ready to receive love yet. Like these are big existential questions. Yeah. So when I get the not yet, I can come at that from a place of empathy and not go to rejection because I can realize that they have, they have time, they need time. And that's genuinely what they need right now is just time maybe to sit in the mess or maybe just not to resolve this, or maybe to really feel what it is to not have a solution yet. (laughs) Um, yeah, I I don't know. I am, I'm loving your reframe. It's not rejection. I'm, I'm going to keep that waiter in my head totally because it's not a rejection. And I feel that, but, um, but in the moment of anticipation, the moment before the sales call, I know I can I can be nervous about the rejection, even though once I'm in it, I'm usually okay personally. I don't know. How does that feel for you, Angela? Yeah, um, that it does it does feel good. I'm thinking about, you know, mindset as it relates to sales. And so much of it is just the way I'm thinking about it about before I'm about to do it is like if I'm thinking about it, like I really need this sale, it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well at all. But if I think, how can I be in service to them? What do they need? Then it goes really well because I'm just focused on trying to solve their problem. And um, that that's always been the, the key for me is when I get too much into my head about I need this sale because I need to do X, Y, and Z with this money, it, like it's a failure. <laughs> Well, and I think even though you may not mean for it to, there's something that comes across to the other person and it might not be that exact message, but it's something like something feels off and then that will cause them to like, oh, I better think about it or, oh, I'm not ready. And so if you can just approach it with this curiosity, frankly, of, you know, what is going on for this person and how can I be of service? And if they're ready you know, to take that next step, I'm ready to like lead them to the next step. And if they're not, it's totally okay. And it doesn't make them a bad person. It doesn't make me a bad person. It just means like, it's just not yet. And, and maybe the not yet will never be with me, but maybe it'll be with somebody else down the road or whatever that is for them. But yeah, if you, if you approach, I actually just had this conversation with a client last week and who was feeling a little like finding themselves in a place of feeling desperate. Like I need this next sale. You cannot go into a meeting from a place of desperation because people feel it from you and it causes you to say inappropriate things. It causes you to make bad choices for your business. And so instead it was like, we reframed of like, how can we turn this into inspiration? How can we find solution-based options for the client? 
and be really curious about what is going to work for them. And then everything gets easier because we're not, again, it's not about you, frankly, the sales conversation, it's about the other person. And, you know, my philosophy is really relationships first, rapport always. And when you put the relationship first and you have rapport with somebody, they will come back to you when they are ready because it feels good. They they left the conversation feeling really good about their interaction with you versus leaving a conversation. I don't know if you know this, but sometimes it's really hard to be the person who has to tell somebody no because you don't want to let somebody down or you don't want to feel like, oh, you oh know, Angela's never felt that. It. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reading her face like, no, no, it's not. Uh, no. It's already happened 12 it, times And it can today. be really hard, right? Like it's hard to say no to people. It's hard to be the person who's like you feeling like you're letting someone down because you're not going to buy from them. And if that person acts in any way, disappointed, frustrated, whatever, they're, you're never going to go back to them when you are ready because it felt it didn't, we didn't leave on a good, we didn't leave on a good note or it felt uncomfortable or awkward or weird. I don't want to feel awkward or weird again. So I'm going to look for somebody else who does what you do and hire them instead. But if you leave on a good note, if the person's like, ah, I'm so glad I talked to Angela today, regardless of what we decided. Hey, when I'm ready, I'm going to come back and hire her. And in between, I'm going to recommend everybody I know to go hire her when they're ready. I like that. Jolie, we, we only have about five minutes left, but I know you've you've had a lot of sales questions on your mind. Are there any last burning questions that you just have to have covered? Well, I got to ask this, which is, what do you, do you have an idea in your head about how long a sales call should be? Like when you're in these conversations, you know, I've heard so many different opinions and I, and that actually muddies, muddies the water for me. And I know I'm a talker. So I know that I can take up a fair amount of space, um, but I know that sometimes it's that getting out of the way and letting people buy from you. That's the actual, that's the thing. That's what I need to do. How do you structure? Do you have like a framework for structuring these so that they fit into like the the plan? Yes. (laughs) So that's a part of the selling staircase. And that is step three in the selling staircase. I call it the discovery step, which can also be, you know, some people refer to it as like the consultation call. Mm -hmm. My what I teach for my clients is that you should be able to do those calls in 30 minutes or less. And for some of my clients, we can do them in 15 or less. It depends on what the context is and the way to do this. And just so you know, it it comes down to, are you asking the right questions during the discovery call? And the right questions need to be questions that lead to hiring you. One of the biggest mistakes people make in the discovery call is they ask all the questions that they need the answers to once the person has hired them. That's a waste of that time. The idea behind the discovery is for you to identify, am I talking to a prospective client or not? Do I want to work with this person or not? And do I have something to offer this person to meet their need? Because I asked the right questions to understand what it is. So my belief is that it should be done in 30 minutes or less. And unless it's turning into be like, this could be a, like, this is definitely going to be a client. This is a huge opportunity. Maybe I'm going to spend a little bit more time with somebody, you know, building the rapport and closing that deal. But realistically, you should be able to identify in about 20 to 30 minutes, like this is a client or not. I appreciate that. I, that's actually the framework I've been working on, um, 
without realizing it, but I feel like I could definitely be more structured. I, and I could make sure I don't accidentally do intake <laughs> when I don't need to, because yeah. that's so easy to slip into. I've also heard a lot recently about, Hey, don't coach on your calls. If you're selling coaching, you're not coaching on your sales call. You're discovering. Right. And right. do you have any tricks for keeping that like for, for, for quelling that desire because coaches coach, right? Like it just yep. blows out. Yeah. So again, it's the questions and it's having a structure to the process. So you open the call with a preframe. A preframe is setting the, like setting the stage for what's going to happen. And then you ask permission to ask questions. You have a set list of questions that you kind of talk through. And not that you can't change them up or be conversational. It should be conversational. But you have a set list of questions. And then what I do and what I recommend for my clients too is every time I hear something that I'm like, ooh, that's something I would coach on. That's something I would coach on. I refrain from giving advice and coaching. And then at the end, I say, you know, based on everything you've shared with me, I already see like five areas of things that we could work on together. Is that something you'd be interested to talk more about? So now I move to the proposal stage. I ask permission. And then if they say, well, what are those five things? I can talk very high level at what the five things are without coaching. Like, well, we're going to talk about how you work stories into your selling process. We're going to talk about creating curiosity, whatever the other things are, right? So I'm giving the what, I'm not giving the how. And the reason, by the way, I don't even know if I said this, Angela, when I was on your podcast before, but I always say like, you know so much, you're such an expert. If you coach on your calls, you know that that's just like one grain of sand off the beach that lives behind you, which is like all your resources, all your expertise. But that person doesn't know your what you know. They don't understand how powerful and positive and amazing you're going to be when they work with you, they think that grain of sand is the beach. So why would they hire you? You just gave them the beach, but you know, it's just one grain of sand. So you're actually doing a disservice when you coach on your discovery calls. I love that. I'm going to take it right to heart. Wow. <laughs> I keep picturing having a, a just a, an outline in front of me on the desk that I'm yes. filling in for each discovery call client, because then I don't, I wouldn't feel the desire to go off the script because I'm, I'm just following, you know, one, two, three, four down, down the piece of paper. Yes. Cause, um, I know I, I do have a tendency to want to jump into problem solving right away, but if I'm committed to the paper, <laughs> I, I love the idea of collecting them though, because that is, that would make me feel really empowered to work with my clients. I, I do feel like they can't see the beach. They, they don't know that is yeah. so, so common in particular because I work in so many different areas of life. So they, I, I couldn't possibly show that all to them in a, in a minute. So I like the idea of collecting those right there to calm my inner problem solver, like let her chill the heck out for a moment <laughs> and get back to the actual discovery. Yeah. And like Angela, like you said too, definitely have a set list of questions in front of you to follow because it'll help keep you on track. It'll, it will absolutely make a difference to your calls. Love that. You've given so many helpful tips and I know you have something else to offer our audience that could be of use. Do you want to tell us more about it? Yeah. So I have an ebook for the listener. If you'd like to download it, it's called Closing the Sale. And it really kind of talks through like the discovery, the the proposal and the close, like the last three steps and give some language suggestions. So I would love to give that as my gift. You can go and download that by going to yoursalesmaven.com forward slash T, no, let me say this forward slash CTS for claiming the stage. So CTS, and you'll be able to download that ebook and now we'll be connected. So 
please go take a look at it. It's a super fast read, super easy, lots of language suggestions in there for you. Excellent. And is there anywhere else we can find you online? Well, you can find me, uh, I hang out on Instagram on under your sales maven. I'm on LinkedIn, Nikki Roush. I'd love to connect with you there. Uh, I am in Facebook, but Facebook for me is where my group, my paid group, we hang out there. So I'm there, but I'm only in the paid group. So LinkedIn or Instagram is probably the easiest way to connect with me. What's your paid group? It's the Sales Maven Society. So that's my monthly membership where I teach trainings, all the trainings. I have a bunch of trainings recorded for the group. And then I answer questions and give language suggestions all day long and rewrite people's email messages and all kinds of stuff in there for the group. So they have, it's kind of like having a a sales expert that you kind of take with you in your back pocket. That's, that's kind of what that group's for. That sounds great. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Nikki, thanks so much for coming back on the show and giving us a whole other side to think about when it comes to selling. Super helpful. Thanks for having me. Jolie and I hope you love listening as much as we love making this show. If so, tell us by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or share it with a friend. Claim the Stage is a production of Speaker Sisterhood and is produced in the Glitter Closet in Holyoke, Massachusetts. Music is composed by Kelly Vogel of Sound Passage. All right, that does it for us this week. Until next time, stop waiting, start creating. Bye for now.